So this morning's message is going to cover what I personally feel is one of the most important lessons that is taught by the prophets. And specifically, it comes out of the prophetic writings. You can argue it comes, it's, a, it's in all of scripture, but it really is out of the prophets that you get this lesson here. And I've actually, as you can see, it's a lesson of the two baskets of figs. And I've taught this before, but it's, when I look back at my previous teachings, it's been more than five years since I last did it. And just in light of the turmoil and the uncertainty that's in the world that everyone's experiencing these days, um, it's been a long haul for the last two years, but especially as we look upon what's breaking out, what broke out in Ukraine um, this week, and as we offer our prayers up for them um, in that entire situation, I think it's, it thought it would be important to cover this lesson again because what the lesson teaches is that we got to be careful about discerning what God is doing in the world, in individual lives, but also with nations. And, and I think the lesson of the two fig baskets from Jeremiah 24 provides um, this lesson. In a few moments, I'm going to have Jason read the entire chapter in order for us to hear this vision that the prophet Jeremiah was given and the lesson that's to be learned from it. But before we do that, I want to provide, because it's always important to do this, not just pluck something out of scripture, but I want to provide both the textual and the historical context that surrounds this chapter. We have to remember that when we come to the book of Jeremiah, that throughout this book, but especially in the first half of it, where we get this, this vision and this lesson, we read of numerous warnings that are being issued by God through Jeremiah. They're warnings that are being given, though, to the leaders and to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. And they, they are given over the decades leading up to the ultimate destruction of the temple and the Babylonian captivity and the 70 years of that captivity that the, that the Jewish people would experience. Now, Jeremiah as a book presents us a picture of how the people of Judah were living during that time period, those decades leading up to the destruction of the first temple. And it's not a very good picture. Unfortunately, we see that the people were breaking the Mosaic Covenant, primarily through the mixing of idolatrous Canaanite practices with the worship, the true commanded worship of the God of Israel. And we even see that some of the Jewish people were participating in the worst practices of these Canaanite tribes, even to the point where God speaks about them sacrificing their children in the fires of Moloch and in Baal. Furthermore, the words that the Lord spoke through Jeremiah reveal that the source of Judah's sins and the reason they were straying from the covenant was a problem that ultimately existed in their hearts and that they were pursuing their own thoughts and their own understandings of righteousness rather than re relying exclusively on the instructions God had given through the Torah. Their turning away from God to pursue the imaginations of their hearts was evident through their, their idolatry. But also, we see it when we read the book of Jeremiah, you see it even in their rejection of Jeremiah as a prophet. 
Instead, we see that the people of Jude and Jerusalem would also often listen to false prophets of their day who continued to claim that all was well and that God was still with them. After all, they had the temple. They had the city of Jerusalem where God had placed his name. They had the covenants that God had made with their ancestors, both at Sinai, but even earlier, the ones made with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of old. So these prophets, these false prophets, were telling the people of Judah, everything's good, everything's fine, God is with us. The message that most people who believe and think they're with God would want to hear. In the midst of this backdrop, though, Jeremiah is the, vo- is the contrary voice. He's the voice that's saying, no, not everything is right with God. We are not living according to the covenants that God gave us. We may have the temple, we may cry out the temple, the temple, the temple. But that doesn't mean God's favor is with us. In all of this, Jeremiah is given this vision of two baskets of figs. And this vision's meant to show him how God was about to bring judgment against Judah. And we read the following in Jeremiah 24. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away the captive Jokaniah and the son of Jokanim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen and smiths, from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good, into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as for the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send them, I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence among them, till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their families. Now, if we just take a quick first pass on these verses, just a cursory view of them, there doesn't anything, any, there's nothing really too shocking in these words of Jeremiah. In fact, they seem very familiar, almost routine to what we read throughout the prophetic writings in the Tanakh. We see a differentiation between the good and the bad, those who follow God and those who don't follow after God. So there's a differentiation there, there's a distinction, and we know that there's two different fates for these two groups. We see God make a promise that he's going to protect the good, those that the good figs represent. He's going to protect them with his favor. There's a promise he'll bring them back to him. 
and that there will be fellowship between him and them once their hearts are turned entirely to him. We also see on the other side that there's a promise to punish the wicked. The wicked are going to be punished through sword and famine and pestilence. Again, this is throughout all the prophets. We read it elsewhere in Jeremiah. We read these warnings and these promises made in Isaiah and in, in, in you know, Amos and all of that. So it seems very consistent. This is the constant message that's repeated throughout the scriptures. God says he will separate the righteous from the wicked and that they have two distinct um, fates. And yet... The message here is also quite remarkable when you stop to think about what's being said here. And it has more to say if we read it from the perspective of the people who were living there in the days of Jeremiah. Though we need to take it from their perspective. We have to go back to 2600, we have to go back in time about 2600 years who are living in the events and they're actually seeing these judgments that Jeremiah is prophesying about being carried out in their own day. This isn't future judgments. They are living the judgments that Jeremiah is speaking about. And when we do that, we, we have to realize just how shocking this vision of the two baskets would have been to the average resident living in Jerusalem or even in the, in the kingdom of Judah. And the reason why it would have been shocking to them is because it's saying that those who are considered the good, those who are the good, the good figs, they're represented by that basket, those who are said they're going to be protected from God's judgment, those who are said that will be at peace with God, they're not the people who survived an attack by the Babylonians. It's not the ones who were allowed to continue to reside in the land. You would think the assumption would have been, again, especially when you have these other false prophets that are giving a different message saying, God's still with us, we still have the temple, we still have, the city still bears his name, we are, everything's good, everything's with God, things are going to get better. Jeremiah comes along and he gives this vision, he's given this vision, then he speaks it, and saying, actually, the good figs, the ones that have God's favor were the ones taken away, the ones taken into captivity. The ones who remained in the land are actually the bad figs. The ones you would assume actually have God's favor, because again, we get to live in the land. We get to go still go up to Jerusalem. We still get to worship and sacrifice at the temple. This vision is saying, actually, you're the rotten figs. You're the bad figs. It's the people, again, who, are, who, who actually have God's protection. They're the ones taken off as prisoners of war by this pagan nation under this ruthless king of Nebuchadnezzar. As it says right there at the beginning of, the first of, the beginning of the chapter 24, this vision is given right after Nebuchadnezzar had laid siege to Jerusalem and had taken the king into captivity, had taken his servants, his craftsmen into captivity. We read more extensively about this in 2 Kings 24, 10 through 16. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he, came, when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Neshtua, the daughter of El-Natan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. 
Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also he carried into captivity all of Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remain except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought back captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Joachim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now this siege of Jerusalem is spoken of here by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. This is actually the second successful siege. It was the second time that they had actually attacked the city. It would be the third time when the temple would finally be destroyed. But this second time, this is the second time also that the Babylonians took the leaders of the Jews and took them into captivity. This time, though, he takes the actual king. The first time he took a lot of the leaders and the princes. Um, he took people, Ezekiel was taken the first time. Daniel was taken the first time. Um, the second time, though, he actually takes the king himself into captivity. And then he sets up essentially a puppet king. It's still someone in, in the line of the kings of Judah. Um, he still replaces, places another um, Judite on the throne, this being Zedekiah. But Zedekiah is there to, meant to be a, just a puppet king. He's meant to do whatever Nebuchadnezzar tells him to do. Now this is the situation in which you lived again. What is your thoughts about being taken captive or being left behind? Who would you assume were the righteous and who were the wicked? Who are receiving God's favor and who would not? Who is not? To make it feel even more real, let's put it today in a context today that we see playing out in the world this very week. And now I pray what I'm about to describe does not happen in Ukraine. Because actually I'm hoping that God delivers the Ukraine from the Russians. But let's say Putin is ultimately successful in his goals, and it seems the goal, at least what most people are guessing, is he wants to remove the government and set up a puppet government that will, that will basically do what he says in Ukraine. So if Russia's defeat, Russia defeats Ukraine over the next several weeks or months, again, he either kills or takes the Ukrainian government leaders into captivity, and then he sets up this puppet government to do what he wants. If you were a Ukrainian living in Kiev at that time, you're not one of the ones taken into captivity, you're left behind. Would you prefer to be taken, well, if, let's just say you are living in Kiev, would you prefer to be taken captive back to Moscow or back to some internment camp in Russia as a prisoner of war where you're likely to be persecuted? Or would you prefer to remain in your home in Ukraine where you would continue to live your life with most of your family you are now, yes, you are now under Russian leadership in the sense of, you know, he, Putin's probably put a Ukrainian on the, you know, in charge of the government, but he's going to have them, again, basically just to be a puppet for him and to do what he says. Where would you prefer to be? Do you want to go into captivity or would you prefer to stay in Kiev? 
Now, I also ask yourself even further, I mean, most people are going to say, well, I don't want to go into captivity. I don't want to go to an internment camp. I'd prefer to stay home. You know, I'm under a foreign, essentially a foreign government. I don't like that, but I'd rather stay at home. But now ask yourself the question, who would be, who would be the person that has God's favor? The one taken into captivity or the one who gets to remain living at home, living at least with some of the family just under this different authority. Now, the natural inclination is to think the wicked would be the ones taken away, to be imprisoned, to be persecuted. Well, they didn't have God's favor if they're going to an internment camp. While the righteous would be the ones to allow to remain in their country. Not a perfect situation, but better than the ones taken away. Now, even more so, how much more would you think this if all of a sudden people who are claiming to be prophets of God Christians going around claiming, I'm a prophet, and they are then starting to say this is the very thing that's, being, that's occurring. Those who are left behind are the ones that had God's favor. Well, I see a Baptist church in Ukraine that survived the attack. They continue to get to worship as they want. They are the ones that, and you know, they're saying these are the ones with God's favor. These are the expectations. These are the expectations of most people. Because again, don't we expect the wicked to be the ones who experience the most difficult path in life? Because God's protection is not with them? And don't we expect the righteous to have an easier path because wouldn't they be under God's wings? The expectations. But what God shows us through Jeremiah, through this vision of the two fig baskets, when we look at Judah's situation, it's the exact opposite to what you would naturally assume concerning the captives and those left behind. It is those who have been humiliated, the ones who have been imprisoned, the ones ripped from their, from their homes and their positions of power. They are the ones that in this vision are considered the good basket of figs. And it's those who escaped that persecution, those who were able to remain in the land and to continue to live their daily life, for the most part, the same as they did before. They're the ones that God said is the, is the bad basket of figs. This would be a surprise to us, and it was a surprise to the people in Jeremiah's day. Again, especially because you have these other prophets in Jerusalem continually prophesying these messages. Everything's fine. And the people of Judah are still under God's favor. Because again, we still have the temple. We still have the city. But we see that they were speaking false messages that were of their own imaginations. They weren't the word of God. Jeremiah 23, 16 through 17 says the following about these religious leaders. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the decade of their own heart, they say no evil shall come unto you. So if this vision of Jeremiah completely flips our expectations, what is it that we need to learn about and apply to our own lives today? I believe the central lesson of this vision is that we should not and we cannot assume to know the will of God simply by looking at the events, the, event, the individual events in our lives, the events we see out there in the world, and measure what his will is based upon what we think is a good outcome or a bad outcome, a fortunate or an unfortunate outcome. We can't say, well, those events that meet our expectations, what we had hoped would occur, well, that shows God's favor is there. And those events where bad things seem to happen, there are things that we didn't want to occur, well, God's 
will and his favor is not there because the two figs shows it's in this instance in that instance it was the exact opposite again this is true both in our personal lives but also in global events the very thing that we might want to avoid the thing we want to avoid the most and we consider the most disastrous might be the very occurrence that God uses to bring forth his blessings and his protection likewise The future visions we strive to sustain or to achieve may very well be the means for God to bring forth his curses, his discipline, and his judgment. The reality is that our ability to perceive the will of God is fundamentally flawed because our physical and spiritual sight is limited by space, by time, the extent of our own knowledge and experiences, our prejudices, and the continued battle that we have with the Yetzer Harah. At our very best, when we have a fleeting glimpse of the totality of all that God has done, is doing, and will is yet to do, we only see it, even in those instances, as though we're looking through a dim mirror. It provides an unclear image. This is why the prophets and the wise men who knew the will of God, because God had showed it to them and shared it with them, those who knew it most perfectly, they always question who truly knew the counsel and the mind of God. Jeremiah 23.18 says, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? We have the wisdom of Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes the following at 8.16-17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a, man's, a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. And finally, we have Paul writing in Romans 11, 33-35. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. It's clear throughout the scriptures we can't know the full will or the full mind of God. At times he gives us glimpses. He reveals things to us through his prophets, through his word. At times through the Holy Spirit he may reveal parts of it to us. But we can't see and know what he's fully doing. And it's our inability to know the mind of the Lord that requires us to have what God says throughout his word. Have faith. Trust my word. Trust my promises. Even when it seems things are darkest and we don't understand what's going on around us and you want to cry out, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Or why are you allowing this to happen to this congregation? Why is this being allowed to happen to this nation? We have to trust his promises that they are there, that they are steadfast, they aren't moving, they aren't going anywhere, and actually in the things, again, we assume may be the very worst things that could happen to us, may be the very way God is working out those promises. We have to trust that God is always directing and moving events to protect those who belong to him, those whom he accounts as being the righteous, those who are in that good basket of figs. Even when our expectations are not, are not met, when our hopes and our desires are unfulfilled, our perceived liberties and entitlements are taken from us, 
or even when persecution comes, we have to continue to have faith that he remains sovereign, that he is on the throne, he's in control. And that is true, again, both in our individual and our corporate lives. As you know, 2018 through 2020, I went through two years of unemployment. Could not understand why that was happening to me. I would have people that would come up to me, and I know they meant the very best, and I appreciated it for that, but they would say, don't worry, God's got something better for you. You know, he's got a plan, he's working something out, there's something, you're, you're going to go on to something better. Well, actually, at the end of two years, I ended up exactly right back where I, was, where I left. I went back to the exact same university, the exact same office. Doesn't seem, at least from what I can see, doesn't seem better, I just went back to where I was, which is, I'm glad to still be able to go back. I needed to be working and employed. To this day, I still have no idea why I went through those two years. Someday, maybe God will show me in this life. Maybe it will be after, when I stand before the throne, he'll make it apparent. I do believe there was a purpose. Maybe he was protecting me from something. Maybe something would have happened if I had been in that environment that would have damaged, you know, something that would have been damaging or harmful to me. I don't know. You have to have faith. Likewise. When tragedy hits a family, the loss of a child, maybe a child you were expecting that isn't born. Shelly and I have been through that with miscarriages. We have no idea why we went through that and why God did not decide at that time to bring that life forward. He had a purpose, though, and we have to still trust his promises. We have to continue to believe that he's got the best intentions in, of us and of all in his mind and in his counsel and in what he's working out. Those are individual perspectives. We look at the corporal and the global. What we saw what, a little over a year ago, so much tied up in a presidential election, so much anxiety and worry, so many people praying for a certain outcome. A lot of people were disappointed by the outcome. You look at the leadership we have in this country. We're many of us are disappointed by what we see right now and the outcome that occurred at that time. But we have to ask those bigger questions because we got it, maybe, maybe we got a different outcome than we wanted or we ex were expecting. What's the bigger questions, though? Well, what candidate did the United States truly deserve? Not what we had wanted or hoped for, but what did we deserve as a country? Maybe we got what we deserved. Because that raises the bigger question. At right now, at this moment in time, does the United States reserve, deserve God's mercy and his blessings? We hope so. But maybe we're at a point where we need to be disciplined. We need to be corrected. Maybe God needs to have us go through, is having us go through some hard times so that we realize there's a need to get back to him. Sometimes maybe a person becomes president because God is like, no, it's time for judgment on this nation. And therefore, this is going to be the one that carries it out. So what we were hoping for, what we were expecting, maybe that didn't align with God's will. Look at the COVID-19 pandemic. Two years now. Saw in The Economist, which is a British um, magazine. Um, they, were, they did a study, and they're estimating that COVID worldwide, when you add up not people that are said to have died from COVID, but they said excess deaths in the world as a result of COVID. So what they were looking at is not only just people who died from the disease, but let's say because of the lockdown and initially 
um, especially in the beginning, if you remember, they were turning away a lot of people from hospitals because they worried about the hospitals being overwhelmed. So maybe a person who had cancer didn't get that screening early enough. And a couple months went by, and instead of catching it, it went to stage two, now it's stage four, so they ended up dying. So that's what they were trying to determine. They were trying to look at it globally, and their estimate is that globally, 19 million, the world experienced over the last two years 19 million more deaths than it would have had if COVID had never had occurred. That's human lives, which obviously is the worst. They also, if you think about the loss of wealth because of the economic turmoil, the lockdowns, the, the disruption to the supply chains, just all the, the rising of inflation now, all that lost wealth, the loss of freedoms that we see a lot of people reacting against now, and then the increase in, distru in distrust and strife and war. I don't know if you saw, there's one theory out there, well, why is Putin acting the way he is? Some say, well, if you look back in the fall, his inner circle of advisors, COVID um, hit that. He isolated himself from them. He essentially quarantined himself from everybody. Some say maybe he got infected by COVID and it's still, he's got COVID brain. Some are saying he isolated himself to the point where he became extremely paranoid and that's what's causing him to re react the way, act the way he is. I don't know if that's true. Some people, there's all the, you read other people, they say, no, this has been his long-term plan. He's been planning this for seven, eight years since he took Crimea back in 2014. So we don't know for sure, but maybe it is. COVID is what's got, for indirectly is impacting what we're seeing in Ukraine now. We don't know. But we see God allows a, this pandemic, this global pandemic to occur. What was the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of those 19 million excess deaths, if that's true? Well, it could be judgment. It could also be God's got something else that this leads, something emerges out of all of this in, you know, that is even better. You know, you listen um, to um, Voice of the Martyrs. Um, probably a year ago or so, I remember one podcast listening to them, and they talked about um, talking to uh, people who evangelized people in Iran, and they said, well, you know, actually, COVID's brought a lot of opportunities to us uh, in terms of spreading the word. Faith in the regime, in, in, the, um, in, the, in the religious leaders, the, the Islamic religious leaders, is at an all-time low. COVID is disrupting so many things, it's contributing to that, and it's actually allowing us a lot more opportunities to make inroads into spreading the good news, seeing people come to Christ. So there's a place where they saw COVID was actually being used for a positive, for the kingdom. So we just don't know. And therefore, regardless of what happens in any of these types of events, no matter how trivial or tragic they may be, we have to remember God's on the throne. And he's there forever. And that even in a time when we experience loss, we experience persecution, we're experiencing trials, if we belong to him, we're in that good basket of figs. And therefore, we have the promise that we will be gathered by him and we will be his people. And therefore, when the judgment and his wrath comes in that judgment, we will be spared from it. You won't be spared from trials. You won't be spared from persecution. You won't be spared from disappointment and hard times because you're a follower of Yeshua. That's the great lie of the prosperity gospel teachers and all the people that fall into that camp. You're not going to be spared that. Nothing in Scripture would suggest that. But you are promised to be spared from God's judgment and his wrath. We can see another example of this in the lesson, uh, in the lesson of Noah. 
In fact, Noah is the first very example we have of this in the scriptures of God sparing a righteous man from his judgment and his wrath. As we all know, Noah and his family are spared from the judgment of the flood because of their faithful obedience in, in constructing the ark that God had commanded Noah to do. But it's not just with Noah and the flood, but throughout all the scriptures, we consistently see the righteous being protected from his wrath. In the book of Ezekiel, God promises to protect the righteous from his judgment. And this is revealed in that it specifically states that the wicked cannot be spared because of the righteous. Sometimes we have this image, especially because we think of, well, remember when Avraham was asking God, God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Avraham says, well, will you destroy a city if there's... Um, or will you not destroy it if there's 50 righteous people, 40 righteous? You know, he gets all the way down to 10. And God says, yeah, I won't destroy it if, there's, if I can find 10 righteous people there. That may lead us to think, well, God will spare his judgment if the righteous are there. Ezekiel, though, suggests that's not always the case. Ezekiel 14, 13 through 14 states, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread Send famine on it and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So, and actually, if you look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, very same thing too there. God takes Lot out before his wrath comes. He will spare the righteous, but he's not forever going to spare the wicked because the righteous are intermingled among them. He's going to take them out. Now, the three, mentioned, three men that are mentioned here, these are men whose lives were spared by God because of their righteousness. Noah spared the destruction of the earth. Daniel, he spared the destruction of Jerusalem. The reason I say that, many, sometimes when you read the commentaries here on Ezekiel 14, they talk about Daniel being spared from the lion's den. Daniel hadn't been spared by, from the lion's den yet when this prophecy came to Ezekiel. And God's talking about, see, these men were spared. This is actually the destruction of Jerusalem. Daniel was in that good group of figs that were taken into captivity and therefore spared. Job, he was spared. Remember, well, what was Job spared for? Remember, he was spared from death while being tested from Hasatan. So God's saying in these verses that should a land be faithless, and it's the time that, the, you know, the sin of that land has now come to its fulfillment. And it's time for God. He can no longer hold back his judgment, his, his mercy, um, and, his, and his holiness. It's there for a while, but eventually the sin comes, becomes so great that God no longer does that. The righteous, like Noah or Daniel, are going to be spared on account of their own actions and their, and their relationship with God, but the wicked of the land will not. Thus, as long as the righteous remain, God's wrath will be held back on account of it. But eventually, God will move the righteous under his protection. He's going to take them out of that situation. He's going to put them under their wings so that his judgment then can be poured out on the wicked. With this understanding established, let's not confuse, though, with the false idea that God's people are protected, like I said before, from persecution, misfortune, or tribulation. That comes. It's only the judgment and the wrath. We see this uh, this morning even in looking at Jeremiah. 
that this notion that God's people will live these great lives, nothing bad ever happens to them. If you just have enough faith, you'll get everything you ever wanted. You'll get your desires. You know, I've, I use the term that God becomes your genie. Um, I saw another um, commentator recently say, God's not your butler in heaven that's just going to do whatever you want. Likewise, if we turn to Isaiah, we see that sometimes the persecutions and the misfortunes that we actually suffer in life can actually, again, be the means by which God spares us from his wrath. Isaiah 57, 1 through 2 states, The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walk, walking in his uprightness. Now, if we look at those two verses there, and we think of them only in the terms of our temporal world, in our short physical lives, you may say, well, how can these verses make any sense? Because what they're saying is the righteous might die in order to enter into rest and be, to be taken away from that calamity, from that evil, that adversity that God's going to bring forth. And that seems like a strange idea. Like, okay, so for me, in order to escape God's persecution, or to, to, I should say his judgment or his wrath, I'm going to die? Well, you know, that, that does, may not make sense. And the following verses in this chapter show that the calamity is judgment against the wicked. That's what God's speaking of here. But once again, we have to think of things eternally. We have to think of it from God's perspective. And again, that we have to keep in faith his promises. And again, specifically this promise that we see throughout the scriptures, that the righteous will be spared, the righteous will be resurrected onto new life. And when we think of it in those terms, then these verses should bring you comfort. Because they are part of God's covenant with the righteous, that they will be taken away and spared from his wrath. Again, maybe that means you die. Um, in Jeremiah, go back to the prophet there. One of the things that he tells um, the king, um, ah, um, who's the young king that, I'm blanking on his name, um, Josiah, yes, thank you, um, Basically, there is a prophecy in Jeremiah where it says to Josiah, you will die in your youth so that you will be spared the judgments that are coming upon um, Jerusalem and the destruction of it and the temple by the Babylonians. God will cause someone to die to spare them from his wrath. It doesn't mean he always does it that way, but there's many ways that God will work this out. Now, I know that as soon as I start talking about being taken away in order to be spared God's wrath, that for many, especially those raised kind of in non-mainline Protestantism, they'll be like, well, that supports the concept of the rapture. The church gets to escape his wrath. For built into the idea of the rapture is that God's people doesn't have to experience the greatest period of tribulation that the world's going to ever experience that's coming, that's been prophesied. And they'll say, well, that includes the seven vials of wrath that are described in Revelation 16. However, to place your faith in a pre-tribulation rapture based upon God's promises that the righteous will not experience his wrath, it misses on several points. First of all, God promises to protect us from his judgment against sin, not, again, the persecutions and the tribulations that are present in the world. Example of this actually can be seen in the book of Revelation, where the 144,000, they're not removed from the earth in a rapture in order to be protected from it. But rather, they're sealed. God marks them so when the, when the wrath comes, they won't be touched by it. 
Revelation 7, 2 through 3 and 9, 2 through 4 says. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and, their air, and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So we have a promise God will protect us from his judgments. But we have to remember he does this in multiple ways. There's various ways that he will do this. He will carry this out. We cannot look at one example or even one promise and assume that it applies to every situation. Just consider, consider some of the most important men who were rescued out of judgment or persecution. Noah, he's commanded to build an ark in Hebrew, a tevah. He's not raptured out of the world. He's actually the one that remains in the world, but he's protected in this teva. We look at Lot. He's commanded to flee to the hillside. He wasn't raptured out of Sodom. Just think, if he had his wife, he would have still had his wife. But instead, no, it's, you know, God sends the angels, gets them, essentially has to grab them, pull them out. But it wasn't that they were just raptured, and all of a sudden they're in the hillside and they're safe. Look at Daniel. Did God rapture him out of the pit when he was thrown into it? No, God closed the mouths of the lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did God rapture him out of the furnace? No, he actually went and walked with them in the furnace and protected them from the flame. Was Job raptured out of his, tribu out of his tribulations, about, uh, um, the, you know, what befell his family and his household and his wealth and then his own physical body? No, he has to go through those tribulations. He has to experience them because they were part of a testing. Now, when I look at the ark there, one, you know, one way God preserved, um, uh, has preserved people during the times of judgment is he has Noah build an ark. Like I said, the Hebrew word for ark is teva. And in Judaism, this word has a dual meaning. And interestingly, outside the account regarding Noah, this word is only used to describe one other physical object in the Tanakh, which is actually the basket that Moses was placed in as a baby. When you read in English, it's always translated as basket, but in reality, it says that his mother placed him in a teva, in an ark, and then she placed him in the river. So we have that meaning, the literal physical meaning of it. Now, according to the Hasidic rabbis, they also say teva can mean word in English. Now, admittedly, that's never used as such in the Tanakh, but they're saying within Hebrew, it can have this dual meaning. And therefore, the rabbis understand that when it says that Noah entered into the ark, into the teva, it carries a double meaning. Yes, he entered, he entered into the physical ark that he built, but he also, at that point, entered into the word of God. Now, of course, as the disciples of Yeshua, this has great significance to us. First, it is an acknowledgment that in carrying out the instructions given by God, Noah found not only physical shelter from the destruction of the flood, but he also found spiritual shelter from the destruction by entering into the word spoken by God, which is to say he found protection by immersing himself in the divine instructions that God gave him. 
Thus, the act of obedience to God's spoken instructions provided Noah and his family the protection from the wrath that God poured out upon the world in judgment, in, in judgment because of its iniquity. If there had not been a righteous heart responding obediently to the word of God first, there would have been no ark for that family to enter into. An ark that was suitable for weathering them the destruction of the flood, and therefore ultimately being able to restart life on earth after it. Secondly, and more obvious, the more obvious implication to the disciple of Yeshua of saying Noah entered into the word is that he found deliverance from punishment of sin and death by entering into a relationship with God through the word. The word that was with God, the word that was God from the very beginning. And that word which then became flesh and tabernacled among mankind. Thus, the deliverance of Noah's family from the flood is clearly a foreshadowing of the deliverance we receive from the destruction of sin and death. And we see this very same image played out throughout the scriptures, not in just, say, for example, what comes immediately to mind, Yeshua becoming the Paschal Lamb, but staying on the Paschal Lamb idea, going back to that first Passover that occurred, when God delivered the firstborn Israelites from the last plague when the angel of death descended upon Egypt. Exodus 11, 4 through 7, and 12, 12 through 13 state. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. When the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even of the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals, then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was, such as was not like it before, nor shall it be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall, shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Much like Noah, who found protection from God's wrath through his faithful obedience of the instructions that he received, so did the Israelites, who were given specific instructions on how their firstborn could be protected from the angel of death as it carried out God's judgment upon the land of Egypt. The Israelites, in essence, at that first Passover, they entered into their own tevah, their own ark, by trusting the promises of God that he was establishing through a covenant. And if you look at the Exodus story, you can really see they enter into that ark, and finally when they get on the other side of the Red Sea, and they're delivered from Pharaoh completely, they finally emerge from that ark, now a new and free people. The third implication of seeing Noah as entering into the word is that it provides us the best example of how we should react to a world that appears to be filled with violence and in which mankind increasingly turns to their own imaginations and towards that evil inclination that resides within them. The action we need to take most of all is to enter into the word. We need to be spending more time with God, going deeper into the word, opening our hearts and our minds to his instructions. In these end days, we shouldn't be devoting our time. It's okay to look at this, but don't be devoting your, devoting your primary efforts to chasing after every rumor that's out there. 
that crosses the airwaves or your social media pages. We shouldn't be stockpiling food, supplies, ammo, and trade goods. We should not be developing bug-out plans that are going to allow us to escape into the wilderness. And I'm not saying don't prepare or have you know, some provisions, but that should not be our main focus, thinking, well, this is how we're going to escape the judgment. Instead, our primary concern should be, occupy, should be occupying our time with the study and the meditation of his word. Enter into his word. This is what the Jews actually did, have, been, had, did, have done for almost 19 centuries between the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans until the, they founded the modern state of Israel. We see how they preserved as a people despite tribulations, exiles, get, being confined to ghettos, crusades, pogroms, genocides acted upon them. How did they do it? By going to God's word. This here, the word of God, this is our teva, our ark. It's our protective ark from the violence and the sinful world that we see around us. And most, more importantly, it's our protective ark against the promised judgments and wrath that's going to be poured upon these nations when their iniquities come to full. We do not need, nor should we even attempt to escape the destruction that will befall the earth by relying upon our own preparations or our own strategic actions, which will only be guided by our imaginations, by our hearts and our minds. Rather, we should be looking for our deliverance to come from the instructions of God. All we need to do is be ready to hear them and to obey. For the promises have already been made to us. They're already there, that we will be sheltered from his wrath. We just need to be ready to respond obediently to those promises when the instructions come. Because we have to recognize, just as in the days of Jeremiah, maybe the righteous are the ones that actually will be taken into exile. Or maybe we will be commanded to build some type of shelter from a flood. We may be required to bear the misfortunes that fall upon us without understanding the reasons for them. Or reside under the blood covering of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Whatever it is that God commands, it will be our obedient faith to those instructions that will determine whether or not we're going to actually be in the teva, the ark, when God closes the door and shuts his people up to protect them from his wrath. Therefore, let us constantly remind ourselves that God's sovereign. He's on the throne. He reigns over all things, in both the good and in the bad, when it rains on the, um, the righteous or it rains on the wicked. And that he always has and he will always be consistent in what he says and what he does. As it says in Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amen. It's our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands, has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow and acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings, the holy one, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven, establishes earth's foundation, the seat of his glories in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other, true is our king, there is nothing beside him. As it is written in his Torah, you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below, there is none other. Amen.